Father in heaven, we are so grateful to thee for blessing us so richly that we could be in that house in this day. Lord, that we could be warmed by the fellowship that we could experience here, that we could look into thy word and to be encouraged and taught from it. Lord, as we look at the world around us and, and see the experiences that others are making and even that we are, are making ourselves and, and encounters that we're having in our lives, Lord, we're, we're so thankful for the peace of thy word and of thy di- scripture that we can take direction, encouragement, admonition, instruction from it, Lord. And so we pray in this day as we would look into your, into your word that your spirit would focus our minds and our hearts upon the message that is needful for each one of us. Perhaps it's collectively, perhaps it's individually, but you, Lord, you know what is particular for our walk with thee and in this world. And so as we would look into it, Lord, we pray that the distractions of this world could be put at bay and that we could be singularly focused about that which we need to hear. And so as we would open it now, we pray thy blessing upon it and give thee thanks in advance for it. In Jesus' name, amen. I ask you to turn with me to Second Peter. We'll be in Second Peter uh, chapter one, and then also into chapter two. Um, you know, a bit of background and to the to the why. Um, this this past week, I was listening to a, a message that uh, Brother Nick Taba had in Brun. Uh, not Brunswick Hills, in Beverly Hills, uh, a couple of weeks ago. And it was coincidental, it was, uh, he was preaching from Mark chapter 5 about faith and the faith of Jairus. And that's a, a scripture that we had looked at just a few months ago, and so I, I just thought it was interesting that, that they had had, that they were going through the, the same scripture passage. And at the end of the message, he talked about, or, or made a reference to, uh, being strangers and pilgrims, strangers and pilgrims in this present world, and that's been a a, a thought on my heart, a a burden on my heart over the last number, of, well, however long, I'm not even sure how long. About what does that what does that mean for us to be strangers and pilgrims? And and it's a it's a phrase that Peter had written in in Second Peter. It's right about the middle of chapter two. Excuse me. In chapter 2 of 1 Peter, in the middle of chapter 2, he has this, I'll, I'll just read it here, uh, verse 11, it says, Dearly beloved, I beseech you as strangers and pilgrims, abstain from fleshly lusts which war, against the, which war against the soul. But this description of us as believers, as strangers and pilgrims in this present world, is one that I was convicted to look at a little bit and from the perspective of one, I say that I feel like a stranger in this world. I say that I feel like a pilgrim. You know, this world is not my home. I'm just passing through. But how comfortable am I really? How comfortable am I in this world and in all of the, I'm not even going to say the trappings, because it's not just necessarily the, the good things, the enjoyable things that we've experienced that might make me comfortable, but just the complacency. Complacency is probably because that makes it sound negative. In my mind and in my heart, and I think in a lot of our lives, is there a contentedness? 
in this world. We're supposed to be content. I have learned in all whatsoever state I am therewith to be content. And that's good. And I think I even made the comment to my wife this week that, you know, I, I've, I'm, this week, the last couple weeks, I'm feeling more content than I have in a long time. You go through tough things, and it makes you find your priorities and, and see that you're content. But if I'm supposed to be a stranger and a pilgrim, how can I really be content? I, maybe I can be content in my um, acknowledgement that I'm just passing through. And so I, I would ask if we could, we're going to read uh, in 1 Peter, from the end of 1 Peter into the beginning, excuse me, from 1 Peter 1 into the beginning of 1 Peter chapter 2, to look at this description that he was giving to the believers as to what their walk should look like, what their perspective of their walk should be, and then maybe give them some, some instruction on, on, on how, to check, how to check their walk. Um, if we remember, at the beginning of this chapter, it talks about how Paul, uh, Peter is writing to the believers who are, are scattered, the scattered throughout Pontius, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, Bithynia, elect according to the foreknowledge of God, but still separated and, and kind of isolated. In verse 13 is where I'd like to start. He gives them a, a description right before that about how they have been saved, where their election comes from, that they are, have been chosen. And he says, unto uh, 13, Wherefore, gird up the loins of your mind, be sober, and hope to the end for the grace that is to be brought unto you by the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, not fashioning yourselves according to the former lusts in your ignorance, but as he which hath called you is holy, so be ye holy in all manner of conversation, because it is written, Be ye holy, for I am holy. And if ye call on the Father, who without respect of persons judgeth according to every man's work, Pass the time of your sojourning here in fear. For as much as ye know that you are not redeemed with corruptible things, as silver and gold, for your, from your vain conversation received by the traditions of your fathers, but with the precious blood of Christ, as a lamb without blemish and without spot, who verily was foreordained before the foundation of the world, but was manifest in these last times, for you, who by him do believe in God that raised him up from the dead and gave him glory and your faith and that your faith and hope might be in God. Seeing you have purified your souls and obeying the truth through the Spirit unto unfeigned love of the brethren, see that ye love one another with a pure heart fervently, being born again not of corruptible seed but of incorruptible by the word of God, which liveth and abideth forever. For all flesh is as grass, and all glory of man is as the flower of grass. The grass withereth, and the flower thereof falleth away, but the word of the Lord endureth forever. And this is the word which by the gospel is preached unto you. Wherefore, laying aside all malice, and all guile, and hypocrisies, and envyings, and all evil speakings, as newborn babes, Desire the sincere milk of the word that ye may grow thereby. If so, be if so be ye have tasted that the Lord is gracious. 
to whom coming as unto a living stone, disallowed of men, but chosen of God, and precious, ye also, as living stones, there's lively stones, are built up a spiritual house, a holy priesthood, to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God by Jesus Christ. Wherefore, also it is contained in the scripture, Behold, I lay in Zion a chief cornerstone, elect, precious, and he that believeth on him shall not be confounded. Unto you, therefore, which believe he is precious, but unto him, unto them which be disobedient, the stone which the builders disallowed, the same is become the head of the corner, a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense, even to them which stumble at the word, being disobedient, whereunto they were also appointed. But you are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a peculiar people that should show forth the praises of him who called you out of darkness unto his marvelous, marvelous light, which in times past were not a people, but are now the people of God, which had not obtained mercy, but now have obtained mercy. Dearly beloved, I beseech you, as strangers and pilgrims, abstain from fleshly lusts which war against the soul." Stop with verse 11. If we, if we look what the Apostle Peter is, is trying to relate to them here, I don't know that I can really appreciate what life must have been like for these believers. Um, you know, he says in verse 7, or verse 6, Wherein ye greatly rejoice, though now for a season, if need be, ye are in heaviness through manifold temptations, the, the trial of your faith being much more precious than of gold that perisheth, though it be tried with fire, might be found unto the praise and honor and glory at the appearing of Jesus Christ. He's referencing in so many different ways this trial that they're going through, this oppression, this abuse that they're feeling, and being young believers and isolated and, and not having um, the benefit of perhaps being able to gather uh, together in larger groups or have a lot of communion one toward another. He's, he's pointing out the, the difficulty that they would have, the difficulty that they were experiencing. And yet he tries to focus them in here on exactly how, how they can find um, substance or strength in their walk. And when he says, um, gird up the loins of your mind, be sober, and hope to the end for the grace that is being brought unto you by the revelation of Christ. As obedient children, not fashioning yourselves according to the former lust in your ignorance, but as he which called you is holy, so be ye holy in all manner of conversation. This, repeatedly through the passage here, he keeps referencing and pointing out to them this sufficiency of Christ, the relationship that they had with Christ, the foundation of it, and calling them back to remembrance of that initial relationship, to, to focus them in, to say that, you know, don't be distracted by the winds of things that are going on around you. Don't be... Um, Distracted is still, still the best word. I'll, I'll go with that. Um, be obedient to the instruction that you're receiving from the Lord, that the Spirit is giving you. Um, 
Recognize that your election is sure. Recognize that in spite of whatever you might see around you, who you are in God's eyes. As he goes through this, um, pointing out the precious, but, but with the precious, you've not been redeemed with corruptible things, but with the precious blood of Christ as a lamb without blemish and spot, who was foreordained before the foundation of the world, that he would save you. In so many different ways, in so many different places, he's setting up this, he's setting up this example or this imagery that he's going to use in the next chapter. And I guess I, that's where I have to go. In the next chapter, he talks about this lively stone, this precious cornerstone. He references the, the passage in Isaiah that we read a couple of weeks ago in Bible study that talks about how a... I'm going to read it so I don't screw it up. Verse 6 of chapter 2. Wherefore, it's also contained in Scripture. Behold, I lay in Zion a chief cornerstone, elect, precious, and he that believeth on him should not be confounded. That cornerstone, Jesus Christ, the cornerstone of our faith, he describes in the previous chapters to talk about how precious it is, how holy it is, and, and puts all of this imagery in their minds to start them out to say that this God the Son, God the Father sent God the Son down to be the payment for your sin. And just the same way as He is the cornerstone, you as lively stones, this spiritual house that you're to be building, God has given you the empowerment through God the Spirit to live as lively stones. Just the same way that you saw Christ live in this world. Blameless. The empowerment of God the Spirit in your lives gives you the opportunity to live that way. When he's, the, these two verses that I want to take, take apart a little bit here are, are really where the, the crux of what I've struggled with to, to try to articulate. Verses 7 and 8. I'm going to read it again, and then I want to take these two pieces apart so hopefully we can understand it. Unto you, therefore, which believe he's precious. This, this stone, actually, let's we'll start with six. Wherefore also he is, in, he is contained in Scripture. Behold, I lay in Zion a chief cornerstone, elect, precious, and he that believeth on him should not be confounded. Unto you, therefore, which believe he's precious, but unto them which be disobedient, the stone which the builders disallowed, the same is made the head of the corner. And a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense, even to them which stumble at the word, being disobedient, whereunto they were appointed. It's, there's a bit of word salad there for me in the way that Peter records this. And what I'm, I would like to try to talk about is this imagery that I see. We have two different paths. If we're talking about this stone, the stone is Jesus Christ. We either... He, he talks about one being a stumbling block and one being precious. If we read it in this order, unto you therefore which believe he's precious. If you believe he's precious, then you hold that stone in honor. You hold that stone in honor, you hold that stone in obedience, and it has become the chief cornerstone of your lives. But if we don't believe he's precious, if we don't hold that stone in the honor that it deserves. It becomes offensive to us. It becomes something that we are disobedient to, and it becomes a stone of stumbling to us. 
And so the question that I had as I was thinking about this in, in the last couple of weeks, how on earth, how on earth could this become a stone of stumbling? How on earth does, does God the Father, does Jesus Christ his Son, God the Son, become a stone of stumbling? And what, what started to uh, come to mind, and, and I, I guess I asked this as a question, is if, I'm, if I see disobedience in my life, if I see sin in my life, if I see aspects of my life where I'm not holding my relationship with Christ in the same honor position, what other pieces of that other side of the equation, offense, stumbling block, dishonor, non-believer, what other pieces of that are also manifesting themselves? What I'm, what I'm trying to allude to, what I'm trying to, to dive into here is how precious am I holding my relationship with Christ? How precious is it to me? Is it the singular thing in my life? Is it the singular motivating aspect of my life? If, if I'm getting complacent, if I'm allowing myself to focus too much on things of permanent residency and not being a pilgrim and a stranger in this world, am I starting to have stumbling blocks come up in my life that are pointing me and should be pointing me back to this relationship, saying that, you know what, there's, you're holding on to, I'll use the example, career. When things don't go well in your career, when things don't go well in school or whatever, and you start to have that overwhelm you, start to have that take too much of a focus for you, do I see that as a, a do I see that as a trial? Do I see that as an opportunity for growth? Or do I see that as God's way of pointing out that I've allowed that to become a stumbling block because I was putting too much focus in it? I was putting too much um, confidence in it and not living my life as a stranger and a pilgrim here. If it all was taken away, if, if, the, if the blessings of good health were taken away, a confidence in good health were taken away, would I look at that as God's will for my life? Or would I look at that as some consequence of, of something else, of this fallen world? And what I was drawn back to was just to keep looking at this parallel piece. If I believe that he's precious, if I honor God, if I, if I believe that he's truly precious, then will I not obey him in every aspect? Would he not be the chief cornerstone of my life? But can I believe that he's precious? Can I seek to obey him and then to say, you know, but there's this other, this other building block that I want to place in my life too. I want to build a little bit on this career path. I want to build a little bit on this uh, relationship path. I want to build a little bit on this, whatever it is. As opposed to being able to say, God, if you took it all away tomorrow, 
I would still be obedient. I would still believe that you are precious. I would still believe that you are the chief cornerstone. I know that's, it's a little bit abstract, and, and I'm, I'm struggling with, with how to relate it a, a little bit more. But this, this thought about being a, a stranger and a pilgrim, how comfortable have I become? How comfortable have I become in just expecting well, the other reference that as I was reading a couple other things, there was, there was a, another description that someone had used. And they said, in our current world, nominal Christianity runs this, the, the two sides of, this, of an equation. We either have crazy optimism or dreadful pessimism. Does that, does that seem pretty realistic? The world we live in right now is filled with crazy optimism. Either everything's going to be perfect or it's dreadful pessimism and everything's going to be terrible. And sometimes, I mean, if, if you'd have been in some of the text chains that I've had in the last couple of weeks, I've had exactly that. I've had crazy optimism and dreadful pessimism all at the same time. But the key, or the, the, the takeaway point that the brother was sharing was where's my biblical realism? If you look at what the Apostle Peter was talking about here, there wasn't crazy optimism. He said that your trials and tribulations are not going away. And he didn't have dreadful pessimism to say that it's going to be terrible, you'll never get out of it. His realism was, you are redeemed by the precious blood of Jesus Christ. Is that, are you confident in that? Is that peace overwhelming you? Is that peace sustaining you? Is that giving you the confidence to walk into the next opportunity that's going to come? He doesn't say, dearly beloved, uh, I beseech you as pilgrims or strangers and pilgrims, that you be encouraged and have the best time ever. He says that you abstain from fleshly lusts which war against the soul. They're going to be there. There are going to be things that will tempt you and try to dissuade you. We live in a fallen world. But you've been given all the tools by our Heavenly Father to work against, to sustain, to, uh, um, to fight against those. Have your conversation honest among the Gentiles that whereas they speak against you as evildoers... They, by your good works, which they shall behold, glorify God in their day of visitation. He says, when you're going through these trials, these temptations, when fleshly lusts are, are tempting you and pulling you away, or trying to pull you away, make it so that your walk is one that will be a testimony to the world around you. Make sure that your walk is one that will have... The evildoers speak of your holy conversation. Speak of your good works. And when they see it, that they'll glorify God in the day of visitation. That they'll recognize that there was something different. That because God, because Christ was your chief cornerstone, that the other things that you built upon that life were things of a spiritual household, not of an earthly household. And don't get me wrong. This is not, uh, I'm not trying to war against um, 
being successful or, or working hard or anything like that. We had a beautiful day yesterday. Went up, we were actually up in the islands and went to a, a boat show in Clayton and got to go out on the water. And I'm thinking to myself as I'm riding out in the water, um, in a boat I've never thought I'd get to ride in. I'm in the back of a triple cockpit with one child on either side. Uncle David, my face was like that the entire time, and I have video to prove it. I couldn't believe how blessed I felt in that moment. I could not believe how blessed I felt in that moment. I looked down at either one of the kids, and big grins. One looked like he was so comfortable he was going to fall asleep. The other one... I think she's going to be a judge at some point in antique boats, and I'm super excited about that. And I could not believe how blessed I felt. And then as we were driving back down to Syracuse, the thought came to mind. Do I feel that blessed? Why don't I feel that blessed in tougher times, in more stressful times? And it's natural. I think that's reasonable. I think it's natural to be discouraged at different times. That's fine. But what I was struck by was having to come back to this thought that my, my level of confidence, my blessedness in my relationship with the Lord, in my spiritual life, in my spiritual walk, needs to be ever more and continuously grounded and anchored in that cornerstone. And when it's not... When my focus is maybe too much on having fun at a boat show, that can be a stumbling block. It's not saying that I don't believe that God is precious, that I don't believe that my relationship with Christ is precious, but it's maybe giving me some insight into my life to say that, you know what, my focus is a little bit skewed. My focus on making sure that um, kids' friend relationships Um, parent reputations in school, business reputations, making sure that all those pieces are always working, always running on the tracks smoothly, and, and that there's no... If I'm focusing too much on that, is there a stumbling block that's coming in? Am I allowing that to take away from the perspective that I should be having? And when I do, if, if I look at this, I wish I had a way of writing this out, this equation. This believing he's precious and not believing he's precious. And what they yield. One yields disobedience, one yields obedience. This side has honor, this side has dishonor. I don't want to be in a dishonorable side. I don't want to see stumbling blocks come into my life. I don't want to be disobedient. But if it's a matter of focus, and it's a matter of focus in degrees, I have to be very, very careful. And in a world where we have this, call it what it is, in a world where we're either told to have that, there's no middle of the road, right? The, how did I say this? The, the biblical realism, the biblical reality that we live in, the world doesn't, doesn't see that anymore. There is no biblical reality in this world. It's either you're on this side or you're on that side. You're either rebelling or you're affirming. You, you can't have your own opinion. You can't 
or no, you, can't, you have to have your own opinion. There is no such thing as truth. But if I live my life in that biblical realism where God is saying through the apostle that, you know what, you are going to have trial and tribulation, but count it all joy for one. But seeing that you've been purified in your souls and obeying the truth through the Spirit unto unfeigned love of the brethren, that you love one another with a pure heart fervently. You've been born again, not of corruptible seed, but of incorruptible, by the word of God, which liveth and abideth forevermore. The overwhelming power of a relationship with Christ. Do I recognize how all-consuming that should be in my life? He says, lay aside all malice and guile, hypocrisies, evil speakings, all those things. As newborn babes desire the sincere milk of the word. Looking at a baby again. The only thing that they care about is being loved and being nourished. And when they're hungry, how much do they want milk? How much do they want to be fed? Do I recognize that in my life? Is is that desire for food from the master that all-encompassing? In practical ways, does that, is that what my life looks like? Is that what our lives look like? We can get our spiritual food so conveniently. We can get it through audio Bible uh, reading to us on our way to work. How often am I doing that? I'm also checking the weather. I'm also checking the, you know, for... I, don't have stocks, but for some reason I love listening to Rick Reagan on 570 when I drive into work in the morning. What is the point? That's not going to, I have no need for that, but I do have a need for the word in my life. It's a necessity for me. And yet, have I allowed other things to take that preeminence in my life? And I, I, I use this as, a, as a, a caution just in the sense that awareness. Where is our awareness? How committed are we to living lives of surrender to, to Christ's direction and his will for our lives? I, I, just one little anecdote. Um, many of you, you probably recall, and I was telling, uh, telling the folks in the car yesterday as we were driving, um, we, we saw a program on the, the soccer team, the Thai soccer team that got stuck in the cave. You've probably seen this in the news. There's a movie that's coming out about this. And I won't steal the thunder, but one aspect of the story that just blew me away was there's a, a, a team of soccer players, soccer boys, team of boys that are soccer team. They got stuck in a cave. They're in the cave for better part of 20 days, I think it was overall. And the diving rescue to get them out of this cave is miraculous. And look it up, you'll be blown away. But one thing that I didn't know anything about, and when the news was talking about this years ago when it had happened, we just thought of a, a flooded cave. For one, now I'm super claustrophobic and we'll never go into a cave. That's terrifying. But what I never would have thought of. A cave is an amount. I thought this was a cave that went down below ground and like into a hole. 
and that water had flooded the hole. Well, that's certain, somewhat correct, except this was a mountain, and they went into the mountain, from at grade into the mountain, and in some cases even went up. But the problem that was happening is that this mountain had all kinds of vents, holes in the mountain, and it's monsoon season in Thailand, and the water is rushing down the mountain and filling the vent holes. And so it's not just that you got to pump the water out, but the water is coming in from above. A man who is from, from Thailand, but works in Illinois, happened to be in Bangkok, happened to, when this tragedy took place, goes to the mountain and realizes what's happening. He's an engineer. It sounded like he was a civil engineer or something like that. Realizes what's happening and says, we got to divert this water. Mind you, they've already started pumping. I just wrote some notes. 30 million gallons of water was pumped out from inside. But they're still coming in from above. And so volunteers, upwards of 5,000, they said, started climbing all over this mountain and plugging holes and diverting water away from the vent holes. But before they could do that, they had to decide where to put the water. And the valley just outside of this cave, it's very remote, um, not, not an affluent place or anything, um, is full of fields, farmer's fields. The livelihood of that whole area was going to be destroyed because they needed to divert this water. And they recognized what was going to happen. And so the question goes to the people, what, what, we, need, we need to do this. We need to divert this water, but this is going to cost you. And without exception, they said, go, do it, right away. We have to save these boys. There was no, there was no well, are we going to be compensated for it? Our fields are gone. This isn't like, I mean, this is like when you build a reservoir. 56 million gallons of water were diverted off the mountain. I would just, like, for imagery purposes, we live over by Westcott Reservoir. Westcott Reservoir has 60 million gallons of water in it. If they asked me, are you okay if we pull the plug on Westcott Reservoir and flood your neighborhood, I probably would have a question about that. What about, I understand we need to save these boys. I get it. I know we need to save them. But what about my family? I mean, what about my family? And as I was listening to that story and I'm, I'm thinking about this and, and thinking about this perspective, my reaction, our reaction as believers to direction from the Lord needs to be exactly that way. I don't care what the consequence. God, if you put it in my place, if you put it in my path and ask me to go that way, my reaction has to be, yes, Lord. It can't be, well, this may not be good for my, you know, I don't have flood insurance. That's, I'm not going to be able to get past that. I have equity in this place now. I have equity in this world now. And if you wipe this off the planet, who's going to be there to take care of me? The song, I'll say yes, Lord, yes, to your will and to your way. I say that. I love that song. I would sing that anytime. 
But I have to take stock. We all have to take stock. And I think in this world, especially today, we need to take stock of our lives to see what is our level of commitment to his will and to his way. Am I seeing some of the paths that he would have me to walk as things that are a little stumbly? Or why am I seeing that as somewhat stumbling? Why am I seeing that as a difficult path to walk? And then recognizing it's because I can't believe I'm saying it, but I probably don't think he's as precious. I've, I've allowed him to be less precious in my life than he should be, than he is. I've allowed myself to be less obedient, which we had to talk about this at home recently. If you're being less obedient, then you're being what? Disobedient. And I'm holding him in less honor than I should. So I pray that, pray that that's not the case for everybody, but I would venture to guess that it's the case for all of us in some measure. And pray that we can have our perspective um, realigned and, and perhaps even just ask that same question that we, we say so many times. to Lord, search me. Try me. Know my heart. See if there be any wicked way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. The Lord bless these words.